Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The most successful Chinese movie of all time is called Wolf Warrior 2. It came out a few years ago in 2017, and it tells the story of a Chinese soldier who basically saves Africa from evil American mercenaries. You know, they say violence never solves anything. This sure is fun. The movie is action-packed and insanely violent. Think The Fast and the Furious meets Rambo. The film's tagline reads, Anyone who offends China will be killed, no matter how far away the target is. The patriotic storyline and over-the-top action sequences help to make Wolf Warrior 2 the highest-grossing non-English movie of all time, raking in about a billion dollars at the box office. And it also inspired a new political term, Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, which is now used by some in China and in the West to describe the actions of the Chinese government under President Xi Jinping. He has an audaciously ambitious plan, essentially to subordinate the West and all the countries of the planet to uh, China's leadership. Xi Jinping has been particularly successful and skillful in playing the political game. And I don't think any of us saw that coming. I'm Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising. Episode 3, Wolf Warrior. For decades, Chinese leaders and diplomats had a reputation for playing it safe on the world stage. Their foreign policy statements were bland, and their stated goal was to keep a low profile, to mostly stay out of international affairs and focus instead on growing China's economy. But over the last few years, that strategy has shifted dramatically. China's foreign policy has taken an aggressive turn this year such as lashing out at Australia for pushing an investigation into the origins of the COVID-19 virus. China's trade sanctions have hit industry after industry. Now there's news Chinese fighter jets came within a few hundred meters of a Canadian warship. At a press conference last year, China's foreign minister explained the government will never pick a fight or bully others. But he said, we have principles and guts and we will push back against any deliberate insult. Beijing is accused of targeting the West with disinformation, hostage diplomacy, economic sanctions, even military aggression in the contested waters of the South China Sea, sparking a debate among Canada and its allies over how to respond to an increasingly bold and brazen Beijing. Insofar as Canada is concerned, we've made it very clear to ourselves that the soft approach does not work. If there's a, a schoolyard bully, ignore him. And if you can't ignore him, make, you, make it plain you're not going to 
put up with it. The driving force behind China's newly aggressive foreign policy is widely seen as coming from the very top. Xi Jinping was elected Chinese president in November 2012 at a Communist Party Congress held inside the cavernous Great Hall of the People. He promised to rally and lead the whole party and the Chinese people of all ethnic groups to liberate our way of thinking and to reform. At the time, Western observers were filled with hope, believing that Xi would become a great liberal reformer and partner to Western democracies. They were wrong. President Xi has clamped down on dissent, removed the term limits for his rule, and centralized his grip on power. It's really been uh, tragic, personally, to see how China has changed under Xi Jinping. But to truly understand how to respond to a combative Chinese president, we need to know who he is, where he came from, and how Xi Jinping went from great reformer to wolf warrior. I decided to ask someone who has shaken his hand and looked him in the eye. Hi, Tony, can you hear me there? Yeah, I can. Nice to see you. How are you? Well, I'm not too bad, actually. Tony Seish is an expert on China at Harvard University. And he met Xi Jinping back when he was still vice president in 2008. Xi's daughter was studying at Harvard, and Tony was part of a delegation from the university, invited to meet Xi at a formal event inside the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. Tony remembers Xi's political poker face. He received us. It was beautifully uninformative. You know, it, it, it tracks a pattern that when you're the vice president, uh, you want to keep pretty close what your views are about anything. And uh, you don't want to be seen to be rocking any boats. Um, you don't want to give too much away. Tony says C was a sharp contrast from his predecessor, Jiang Zemin, who led the Chinese Communist Party for over a decade until 2002. Tony says, unlike C, Jiang was very upfront. He was very open. He actually loved just having questions and a discussion. And what was set up, I think, for a half-hour meeting finished up at least an hour and a half. Uh, with a lot of back and forth. Uh, with Xi Jinping, it was very much a ritual uh, where, you know, he was very polite. But um, I don't think any of us gleaned anything about the nature of the man at that time. That visit set the tone for Xi's presidency. Details about his life, including why and how he makes decisions, even where he lives, are all shrouded in secrecy. He's one of the world's most powerful men, and yet we know remarkably little about him. If you head down to your local bookstore and look for political biographies, you'll find the usual suspects. There's A Promised Land by Barack Obama. Lots of books about Donald Trump. Great Again, The Art of the Deal. There's Justin Trudeau, Angela Merkel, Vladimir Putin. There are even biographies on North Korea's secretive leader, Kim Jong-un. 
But what you won't find are any substantive biographies on the current president of China. Well, I think there are two reasons for this. That's Yun Sun. She grew up in China and now lives in Washington, D.C. Yun is the director of the China program at the Stimson Center, a global security think tank. This is almost a tradition with Chinese leaders that you don't see biographies written about the leaders uh, while they are still in power. Um, I think this is one because uh, well, in the Chinese traditional culture, you don't write a book about a person who is still alive because his life has not ended. And um, another reason is, uh, well, for someone who is, who is still in power, if you want to write a biography, uh, it's very difficult to have the complete story. I think with Xi Jinping in particular, um, there's also this factor of the narrative being closely guarded and being closely managed by a very complicated system of, um, of the message control or the propaganda department, if you will. But by combining the official version of events with other interviews and details, we can piece together an outline of C's early life, and it offers some insights into the man who would become president. C was born in 1953 into a life of luxury. He was a princeling, a term which referred to the sons of China's original revolutionary leaders. The country had just been through a brutal civil war, and the communists had won. In 1949, their leader, Mao Zedong, declared victory and founded the People's Republic of China, the country as we know it today. Mao became its ruler and chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Xi's father was a famous general, considered a war hero, and he became a high-ranking official under Mao. As a result, Xi's family was practically royalty. They lived in a famous compound in Beijing, along with other Chinese leaders. And at a time when China was rife with poverty, Xi's family had chefs, bodyguards, chauffeurs, and specialized schools that were set up just to educate the children of the Communist Party elites. As a young boy, Xi was described by his teachers as a polite, shy bookworm. But at around the age of 10, everything changed. Once your family falls from power, your family basically loses everything. Xi's father had a falling out with Chairman Mao. He was stripped of his position and effectively outcast, separated from his family and sent to do manual labor far away in the countryside. Then, a few years later, in 1966, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution. Speaking to a crowd of millions in Tiananmen Square, Mao announced his plans to purge the Communist Party and the country of what he called capitalist rotors or influences. The revolution ended up spiraling into a decade of chaos destroying much of the country's social fabric. Millions died. At the time, Xi was just a teenager. His family's house was ransacked. One of his sisters is said to have committed suicide. His mother was forced to publicly denounce both Xi and his father, her husband, as enemies of the state. (laughs) 
1969, Xi, along with around 16 million other young Chinese, were loaded onto trains and sent to the countryside to work in the fields with the peasants. Seven years of physical labor. A lot of people see that experience as um, significant in shaping his personality, shaping his approach to politics. Cultural Revolution showed him that how cruel power struggle could be in, in China, especially within the, uh, within the power center. And there is a sense of that, that you, if you lose, you could lose everything. Xi likes to tell the story of his time in exile, about how it opened his eyes to the suffering of ordinary rural Chinese. After a few months of manual labor, Xi couldn't take it and actually ran away back to Beijing, but he was eventually sent back to the countryside. And he not only uh, was sent to the countryside, but he went to a particularly poor, particularly undeveloped, particularly brutal region of China. And he stayed there for a particularly long time compared to other sent down youth. And we, we see him remark uh, repeatedly that there was nothing as hard as that and that it turned him into a tougher individual. That's Joseph Terigian a China expert at American University in Washington, D.C. He's writing a biography on Xi's father, Xi Zhongshun. Turigian says that unlike other members of the elite who'd been cast out, neither Xi nor his father ever turned their backs on the Communist Party. What's so interesting is that this individual who, for Western observers, might seem like someone who would be upset with this organization that had caused him to go through all of those uh, emotionally distressing experiences was actually someone who took pride in what he faced because, uh, in his words, they were forging experiences. They were moments in time that not only allowed him to rededicate himself to the party, but also demonstrate his belief that the, the party was the only organization that could save China. The chaos of the Cultural Revolution taught Xi that a strong central government and Communist Party were needed to hold the country together. In 1976, Mao died and the Cultural Revolution finally ended. Xi returned to Beijing to study, and his father was welcomed back into the Communist Party and became a champion of economic reform. In 1980, Xi's father was one of the first Chinese officials to visit the United States. So for anybody who studies Chinese elite politics, the conventional narrative for a very long time was that after the Cultural Revolution, the leadership in the party decided that it would be disastrous for another strong man to emerge. And in fact, Xi Jinping's own father was of that particular opinion. Little did he know that his own son, Xi Jinping, would emerge as that strongman. Yun Sun from the Stimson Center think tank says over the next three decades, Xi slowly climbed his way up the echelons of power. He really started from the very bottom of the system, but he gradually rose up in the system and remember that by the time that he came to power, China had been um, basically keeping a low profile and biding its time for almost three decades. 
So I think the idea by 2013, the idea that somehow the new Chinese leader is going to completely deviate away from the previous path and seek a, a, an ambitious, assertive, or even aggressive foreign policy was quite unthinkable. Instead, many believed that Xi would follow his father's footsteps and push for reforms by further opening China's economy and drawing closer to Western democracies. But Tony Seish from Harvard University believes the turning point came a few years earlier. In 2007, Xi was appointed party secretary of Shanghai, and he watched China's state-owned enterprises. Businesses that enjoy massive government financial support were racking up record profits. He saw a model that he thought worked, and a model which could keep the Communist Party in control of the process. Then came 2008. Wall Street's worst day since 9-11. The Dow plunging more than 500 points. The S&P down almost 5%. The wreckage unprecedented. Xi and other Chinese officials watched as the financial crisis devastated the United States and its allies. And I think we see a very discernible shift in mentality and attitude amongst many of the elite and leaders in China, including many of those who were very sympathetic uh, to the United States and perhaps wanted to move their economy, if not their politics, more towards uh, a Western model of development. And I think that really uh, created a shock. Uh, And that idea that somehow the West is the master and we are the pupils who should study certain parts of it faded away And there became a much stronger confidence that perhaps what China was doing was best and that, uh, you know, China could get it right. Xi's backstory paints a picture of a man who has witnessed extreme poverty and political chaos and who believes the best backstop against both is an all-powerful central communist party. But I think from Xi's perspective, when he took power in 2012, China looked an absolute mess. Corruption was endemic. Uh, Local government, local society seemed to be pursuing its own interests uh, with little uh, attention to what Beijing was intending or Beijing was pushing. And I think as he looked around at that, I think he thought unless there was strong central control through a unified Chinese Communist Party, China would be in trouble. After Xi took power, he wasted no time tightening his grip. Xi's political philosophy, called Xi Jinping thought, is now enshrined in the Chinese constitution. In 2018, Chinese lawmakers abolished the five-year term limits, allowing Xi to remain president indefinitely. Xi is now widely considered to be China's most powerful leader since Chairman Mao. Xi Jinping has been particularly successful and skillful in playing the political game, in um, aiming at his political opponents and gradually removing them from their power. I think what has surprised myself and others is the degree of centralization that Xi Jinping has pursued. Centralization of power not only over his communist party, but also on the economy and all aspects of society. His critics accuse him of accelerating Beijing's crackdown on human rights, increasing mass surveillance and censorship. 
In 2018, those Chinese censors even banned Winnie the Pooh after online posts and memes joked about C's apparent resemblance to the lovable cartoon bear. But C's supporters claim those accusations are baseless distractions from his great achievements. Beijing says C's government has lifted nearly 100 million people out of poverty, though that figure was calculated using a poverty line that the World Bank typically applies to poor developing countries, while China's economy is the second largest in the world. Propaganda videos often show C mingling with farmers, smiling, holding hands, and walking together to highlight the president's concern for the rural poor. And China claims this just shows the extent of China's human rights. That's Jeremy Paul Thiel. He's a China expert at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he was also a visiting professor of international relations at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He says the Chinese government sees itself as prioritizing the good of the country ahead of the individual. Our approach to human rights and rights in general is through the individual. That is to say, if one individual is treated badly or poorly treated, to a Western Canadian point of view, that means that no one's rights are safe. It's not that China has no regard for human beings. They don't regard rights on an individual basis. So the fact that you reduce extreme poverty shows that the government cares about human beings. But they don't necessarily care about individuals in the same way that our system does and our values um, teach us. Jeremy argues those differences in values shouldn't preclude China from being an ally to the West. China can be both different and not an enemy. We have to be able to find a way of talking across difference without defining difference as being enemy. But one of the hallmarks of Xi's rule has been a zero-tolerance approach towards anyone who dares to challenge or even question his government and its policies, cracking down on dissent both at home and abroad. The Prime Minister says it's clear Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were detained in an obvious attempt to put political pressure on Ottawa. The arrests of the two Michaels, Canadians Kovrig and Spavor, in December 2018, are widely seen as retaliation for Canada's arrest of Chinese telecom executive Meng Wanzhou at the request of the United States. Beijing also temporarily blocked billions of dollars in imports of Canadian canola, beef and pork. Jeremy Paltiel from Carleton University says Beijing is punishing Canada to send a message. The Chinese expression is um, killing a chicken to scare a monkey. That faced with the pressure from the United States and the attack on China's trade, China did want to make clear at that time that people would follow the of Donald Trump's way, there would be consequences for it. And those consequences have sparked a debate in Canada over how to respond. We have been unequivocal in our defense of the two Michaels arbitrarily detained in China. We've continued to work uh, to resolve that situation. We will continue to stand up uh, for the Canadians' rights, for Canadian interests. 
Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has tried to walk a fine line, at times talking tough, but also unwilling to take any real action against China. An Ipsos poll for Global News last year found Canadians are similarly torn. Around half said Canada should be careful not to offend the Chinese government and risk further retaliation, while the other half disagreed and wanted Ottawa to take a tougher stance. One thing both sides agreed on, 82% of those polled said Canada should reduce its trade reliance on China. Here again is Jeremy Paltiel from Carleton University. There is no doubt that there has been a collapse of trust. And yet we live in a world which is, is profoundly interdependent. Probably three out of four packages that arrive on your doorstep that you've ordered contain stuff that's been made in China and will continue to be made in China. Our prosperity, in some sense, it does depend on having some relationship with the, the growing prosperity of China. Indeed, China is Canada's second largest trading partner, though it's a distant second, well behind the United States. Last year, China accounted for 14% of our imports and less than 4% of Canadian exports. Actually, Canada's economic dependence on the Chinese regime is not as great as most people think. That's Charles Burton, formerly a lawyer at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing, who is now with the Macdonald Laurier Institute, an Ottawa think tank. Seems to me that so long as the government only uh, condemns the Chinese violations of the international rules-based order in diplomacy and trade and human rights by simple lip service or virtue signaling, simply saying Canada is very concerned or we, uh, we'd like an investigation of this or that, but we don't take any effective retaliatory measures that this then emboldens the Chinese regime to do more of this kind of thing. But for a lesson in what can happen when a mid-sized country decides to challenge China, one need only look down under. Hugh Remington is an Australian journalist and national affairs editor for the 10 Network broadcaster in Australia. Hugh used to be based in Hong Kong. We're on the outer with China at the moment. Beijing recently kicked out every single Australian journalist working for an Australian news outlet in China. In just six months last year, the Foreign Correspondence Club of China said Beijing expelled a record 17 foreign journalists. There's, there's no foreseeable time in the future, uh, in current conditions, where we're going to have any journalists going back in there. Over the past couple of years, two Chinese-Australian journalists and writers have been arrested, including Cheng Lei, who worked for the Chinese state broadcaster. She's now charged with spying. To everyone's surprise, she did. She was not a troublemaker. She she broadcast a business program on Chinese television. Uh, she, there was there was no obvious case, certainly no reason being given. But she has been in detention. Australian news outlets top a long, growing list of Aussie industries caught in the political crossfire. And so from uh, timber to lobster to wine to barley and a whole bunch of other commodities that we sell to China, uh, we found our export access being closed off, and that is causing a degree of pain. China is by far Australia's largest trading partner, responsible for about half of all trade. So what sparked the spat? What seemed to be the specific trigger was that uh, at a point last year, when the whole world was dealing with the pandemic, 
the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, really got out a little ahead of everyone else and said publicly that he thought there should be an independent global inquiry into the sources of the pandemic. Now, this might seem an absolutely unremarkable statement to make if you've got a pandemic that's shutting down the global economy that's causing untold human suffering, that it would be a reasonable thing for the, base, for the benefit of all the world to find out where it came from. But this is a hot spot. It is a, it is a do not cross the line moment for China. And they saw this as being a, an insult. And almost immediately, there were the consequences starting to flow through. Chinese officials recently provided Australian reporters with a list of 14 grievances, reasons why Beijing is angry with Canberra. Besides calling for an inquiry on the source of the pandemic, Chinese officials also pointed to Australia's decision to ban Huawei, the Chinese telecom company, from its 5G rollout, and a new law banning foreign interference in Australian politics, which Beijing said was targeting China in the absence of any evidence. When there are criticisms uh, that need to be made about China, um, people have learned from the Australian experience that it's unwise to go as a single nation and, and criticize China. Uh, because you'll be picked off. So as a result, Western allies are now locking arms. We have to have democracies working together. U.S. President Joe Biden is focused on building a coalition of countries to stand up to China. I'm going to invite an alliance of democracies to come here to discuss the future. And so we're going to make it clear that in order to deal with these things, we are going to um, hold China accountable to follow the rules. One example of that coordinated response in March of this year, the US, EU, UK and Canada came together to pass joint economic sanctions, targeting a number of Chinese officials for their alleged roles in persecuting China's Uyghur minority. Can you just introduce yourself so we have it uh, on the record? Uh, I'm Stephen Lee Myers. I'm the Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times, now based in Seoul. And in case you were wondering why The New York Times Beijing bureau chief is based in South Korea. Uh, I've been in Seoul a little more than a year now. Um, they kicked us out in uh, March of 2020. Myers and his American colleagues at The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post were all expelled from China last year collateral damage in a spat between Beijing and then U.S. President Donald Trump. But unlike his predecessor, U.S. President Joe Biden seems less interested in challenging China alone. The Biden administration, perhaps wisely, um, has thought that they, the United States can't take on China by itself, but would do much better with its European allies, with its Asian allies, um, and you know, has been, I think, steadily, quietly trying to explore, explore ways that jointly, collectively, they can bring pressure on China to change its behavior. Um, China sees that as you know, an inevitable threat, is doing its best to try to block that, you know, to split the allies when they can. And but also very happy to compete and show that they have their own allies that they can turn to. Russia is a principal one, um, but also across Africa, uh, Pakistan, its its immediate neighbors. You know, China feels like it has a lot of allies and doesn't really have to you know bow to the United States uh, and its friends uh, to to meet their demands. 
For some, watching China and the United States, two superpowers with opposing worldviews, building coalitions against each other, feels ominously familiar. USA versus China, a new Cold War? China's wolf warrior diplomacy and growing tensions over the status of Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the South China Sea have sparked a debate over whether the world is heading towards another Cold War. Myers was based in Russia for the New York Times before he relocated to China a few years ago, and he believes the Cold War analogy has merit, albeit with one key difference. There are elements of this kind of Cold War geopolitical competition. Uh, It's militarily, um, it's economically. I mean, one huge difference, I think, is that in before in the Cold War, you had the Soviet bloc, which was effectively um, cut off from the rest of the world. But really, you had two separate systems, and the world is just much more integrated now. And for that reason, Biden's strategy of alliance building is already showing some cracks. Germany, for example, is rebuffing the idea. The Chinese market is just too important for German automakers. And after China banned barley imports from Australia, the Chinese government started buying from Canadian farmers instead. Those farmers are now enjoying record sales. And so I think it would be much more difficult to decouple, as they say sometimes, or like create this divided world again where you have people on one side and the other because, you know, the relationships are going to always be much more entangled. So the question in this new new kind of Cold War is, you know, how, how do they, the political, geopolitical uh, conflicts spill over into the areas where you do have this in- integration going on? In the meantime, China is building its own alliances. Senior Chinese officials have held a flurry of meetings in recent months with their Russian counterparts. Russian President Vladimir Putin described ties between the two countries as being at the best level in history. China is also investing heavily in fostering relationships with poor and developing countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America offering support from loans to Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines. I think that if you talk to most uh, thoughtful Chinese officials, their intention is not to alienate themselves from the world, Um, but they're demanding respect. Um, and it's their respect on their terms. You know, they're not just saying like respect us and hear us out. You know, they're like, do what we want. And, you know, right now, looking around the world, it seems to be working. The message to the world is clear. China's wolf warrior president is showing his teeth. In the final fight scene of Wolf Warrior 2, that hit Chinese movie I mentioned at the start of the episode, the main American bad guy has the good guy, the Chinese soldier, pinned to the ground with a knife to his throat. The American says, people like you will always be inferior to people like me. Then the Chinese hero snaps. In a feat of strength, he jumps up, overtakes his American enemy, grabs the knife, and replies, that's history. 
as he strikes a fatal blow. Then the hero is driven away to a resounding applause while holding a Chinese flag in the air. Movies, like just about everything else in Xi Jinping's China, are sanctioned by the government. And there's little doubt that the president would approve of that script, featuring a poor African country long exploited by evil Westerners and finally rescued by a wolf warrior with China rising. On the next episode of China Rising, we'll visit a city that many in the West had never heard of before January 2020. Chinese authorities are effectively putting a quarantine on an entire city, cutting off Wuhan. It was scary, to be honest with you. I have never seen the city like that. China's initial cover-up of the origin of the coronavirus is resulting in uh, its spread around the world. We cannot exclude the possibility of some kind of a lab accident. That's next time on China Rising. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Dila Velezquez and Kamyar Razavi. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston, editing assistance with Stephanie D'Souza. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Semple GN. And you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. And please join me next time on China Rising. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.